0: Hello and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans and we are today with Hadley Harris, who's a co-founder of ENIAC, which I believe he co-founded with his college buddies or MBA buddies. We'll get into that whole story. And um, these guys are, I guess, by today's standards, early in the New York ecosystem. We're going to talk about that whole evolution. Prolific seed investors. We've been seeing you guys on many cap tables, and got a couple stories of things happening between New York City and San Francisco, and getting deals done quickly at the early stages. But Hadley, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk first. Well, first, maybe explain to us where you guys play, and then I want to get into the evolution of. of the new york city uh venture ecosystem and then also where we're at with the seed market since you guys have been so active and over such a long time
1: yeah sure so yeah we're a seed fund so we lead pre-seed and seed rounds uh we've been investing since 2010 we're on our our fifth fund at this point and we've really been very consistent although seed has changed a lot in that time frame um what we've done hasn't so you know we've been kind of focused on always our first investment being in seed. Now seed has like lots of different variations between pre-seed, seed, and sometimes you have these kind of larger uh, seeds, but uh, always entering within that. And then we'll continue to invest in our companies kind of through series A, B and beyond. And we have a opportunity fund to keep investing over time, but those are following investments. We really focus on entering and leading those seed rounds.
0: Okay, so entry point is, would not be series A, it would still be... and. What so? That's right. I guess sometimes you guys are investing, as we've done, pre-company being formed, right? Like, you're you're finding the company before they've incorporated or gotten the first employees, or, and then sometimes obviously much later. But maybe define the starting point to the end of the entry point for you guys.
1: Yeah, what you described is probably about as early as you can get. We've had a, a few cases where we've kind of known folks before and been involved and kind of verbally committed to the round even before the company is formed. I think from a legal perspective, you do need a company to invest in. So then, you know, you <laughs> go around and form the company and do those kinds of things. Um, I'd say in most cases, um, more times than not, we are the first round. There are some cases where maybe a company has raised a small pre-seed round and then we'll need like a three, $4 million seed round. But in most cases, it's the first round. And we pretty much are always investing before what I would consider kind of product market fit. You know, I, I think once you kind of get through that and you get to scaling, there are a lot of great funds, you know, multi-stage funds that are built for kind of scaling a company. Uh, we like to focus pre-product market fit. Um, just one reason is we think it's just the most exciting area. Like we, we love working closely with founders and kind of helping them get through that. And I think it is a kind of a, a somewhat of a skill that you pick up over time. Um, even though every company is different, you kind of learn things over investing in twelve years of what to look for. Um, and the second thing is um, uh, they're, uh, at the, at the early stages, when we invest, uh, those companies tend to be very small. it's It's really a, a, the founders themselves and investing in in the team versus kind of there's not a lot of kind of finance involved. We all have entrepreneurial backgrounds, We're all uh, engineering backgrounds, my partners and I. Uh, we've all built venture back companies, so I think that's just a better fit for our, our skill set. Whereas when you get into to scaling and making those investments, a lot they, a lot of times you have folks with kind of more of a financial background that are that are better at that.
0: So, and what's the? I remember you know meeting Ron Conway a long time ago, and he pulled out a spreadsheet and showed two hundred and fifty companies in one fund, and that seemed at the time very crazy to me. When you're investing in early stage, you know especially with other people's money, you tend to want to have a bigger set of companies to get enough diversification to neutralize the singular risk of investing in such early companies. You know, now you've gone over so many funds over, you know, coming on 13 years. What do you think is the right number of seed, pre-seed companies to have in a single vehicle fund to neutralize the risk in your mind? Or, Or do you think about that completely differently?
1: No, we do think about that a lot. I I don't think there's one answer to this. I think you can be successful with the Ron Conway model of doing a lot of investments. We um, actually somewhat opposite. We have pretty uh, concentrated portfolios. Uh, So we do about 12 investments per year across the whole firm. Uh, And then we usually do a three year investment period. So we have about 36 investments per fund. When you're entering at pre-seed and seed, I think that's about as concentrated as you want to go. There maybe are a couple firms that are will do a little bit less, but to your point, you need more shots on goal. You know, you need each investment to be a fund returner. Every one of our funds that has returned has already has a, a like one company that's returned the entire funds. So that's that's just venture math. That's how kind of uh, power law tends to work. And so you need enough shots on goal to feel like you have that opportunity. You can do more, but that's that's about as little as I would do if you're kind of entering it at pre-seed and seed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me personally, I don't like to get more than one a month cadence because then I feel like I don't even remember their names or I'm not that valued totally. at, you know, I'm not that valued Like I've, I've I've heard other VCs say like, oh, I've got the options to invest in any one of my 1,500 companies. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what's going on with those companies. That's too many. That's too many companies to keep track of. That's impossible to be their most valuable investor.
1: Yeah, there's no. I mean, like you can do that and you can do it successfully, but you're not. You're not kind of their main call, right? To your point, I mean, we do about one a quarter per partner, and I. I feel like you know we generally are leading those rounds. We're investing about half or or more of that seed round, so we're kind of the investor of record, and you can do that with kind of you know, three, four year per person, you could get up to one a month, that's probably about as high. But yeah, you start talking about some of these funds. And again, like that, that's their strategy to do 50 investments yeah. a year. That's it's just gonna be a different type of relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I know like a, a buddy of mine works at Lightspeed as a GP and he said, it's like two investments a year and there's eight of us, you know, and, and, and yeah. that, that it's it's a different, some personalities belong somewhere. <laughs> Um, yeah, total spray yeah, totally. to, to to that. And the fact that you've got opportunity funds and follow on funds forces you to keep track of them and hopefully be you know evaluated guys. So you you're you're able to guide even, even in money you know afterwards. Totally. That's pretty cool. Otherwise so,
1: you're not getting your allocation in the late stages.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always say there's the pro rata equity right to that they have to let you maintain your you know, unless like some sharp elbow comes in, but then there's the earned pro rata, right? So, uh, talk about when when I was an entrepreneur in the '90s. I remember I had a startup in Northern Virginia, Washington D.C., where we basically flew over New York to get to Boston, where there was more money than in New York. And then, as the dot com craze raged in the late '90s, every investment banker took the tie off and got like a foosball table and had a VC fund somewhere in like Hell's Kitchen or something and then they all disappeared after the dot com and they went back to their investment banking hedge funds and then and but, but so maybe describe how New York's VC ecosystem changed in the years that you've been there so that would have yeah, been so, 2010 was yeah 2010 is when we
1: first that's right yeah it's it's changed a ton you know it and i used to spend a lot of time in, it, out in the valley both as a founder pitching uh, VCs and even kind of the earlier days of pretty much up until uh, COVID. Um, The early days of New York, uh, all the kind of opportunities you would see as an investor and a lot of the folks that were building were there for, because it was New York. So it was like a lot of kind of fintech or selling into financial services. There was a lot of kind of fashion. There was a lot of ad tech. These were companies that kind of came out of the major industries of New York. And I think what you see now, and I think the data backs backs this up, is it just looks a lot more like the Bay Area. There's a little bit of everything. You have SaaS companies. You have infrastructure companies. You have these companies that traditionally you wouldn't have seen in New York as much. And it's just kind of much more well-rounded. The size of the ecosystem is much larger if you look at kind of, depends how you define it around kind of deals and money in. It's the clear kind of second largest market and kind of uh, grown quite a bit. So back then, to your point, a lot of folks in New York, uh, in New York would kind of go up to Boston to go on to like 128 and, and pitch. That's right, uh, yeah. VCs and pretty much all of them are, are gone. Like there's a couple left, like Charles River Ventures, where I, luckily was kind of get my start. That's kind of moved into the city. And, and I think they like to be called CRV. Be
0: like like they're not yeah, allowed CRV, to say Charles uh, River. Yeah. They're trying to they're <laughs> trying to get away from their Boston heritage. They right? are
1: close to Charles. Yeah, they are close to the river. Although, yeah, I think most of people out west. But yeah, it's it's funny. Um, yeah, so it's just changed a lot. It, it's gone from kind of a uh, like distant third market to like a a clear second biggest market within within the us um and then since covid i think you've kind of even seen it take off more in terms of more founders uh building kind of again like a diverse like a broad array of things and then more uh dc is moving out pretty much every large multi-stage fund is open an office i get a an email once a week for a for office opening party uh they all have much bigger offices than us and less people in new york so it's always kind of kind of funny but um yeah it, it's great to see i'm a big fan of kind of new york tech and really nice to see what it what it's become and you know the credit goes to like these these founders that have been big uh built big companies you know like um uh, especially the ones like kind of like a like a mongo and a data dog that you traditionally would only see in the valley those are the ones that i think is most exciting um, versus some of the kind of bit more traditional areas.
0: How about the acquisition scene? I mean, it, it seems like um, a lot of the big balance sheet buyers, like the Fangs are on the West Coast. I remember DoubleClick was a big New York acquisitive buyer for a little while, and then they got bought, but what's the acquisition scene like in New York? I mean, God knows there's no shortage of investment bankers in that city. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's not a problem. Um, you know, we, it's, it's been kind of slow on the, on the uh, M&A front even the last year. Um, you know, luckily compared to when we started, when we started, it was like all exits pretty much were acquisitions and things have opened up at least until last year on the IPO front. Um, so most of our larger companies are gunning for an IPO. We haven't really had a, a large acquisition in a while by the, the last large one we had was a um, sizable one was, was a PE shop. So I think... Overall, M and A is kind of a global, at least kind of a, a nationwide thing. I don't know that there's that much kind of regional focus. All the FANGs do have offices in New York, so it's not like they can't buy a company and kind of have them work out of that office. So I'm not sure that I would say, other than the fact, as you said, that all the banks are generally headquartered in New York, that there's kind of a local scene.
0: Sure. So talk about the how has seed invested changed? How has seed investing changed o- over these years? Like how are you pricing a seed round for a company that was what are the main building blocks of a arriving at a cap on a convertible note or a valuation when the company is pre-product or pre-revenue you know pre-product market fit how do you guys think about yeah. that yeah
1: well, maybe just like at a high level, how things have changed over time. When we first started, for those first kind of four years, it was very unstructured. It was mostly party rounds. There weren't kind of clear leads. Most most of the rounds were not. Uh, we're done on on kind of convertible notes. And then I think the last, say five, six, or sorry, uh, five to seven years, it's become much more structured. Where you know it is like a a real asset class. You have a lot of funds like ourselves that focus on seed. You have multi-stage funds that also do seed. Uh, You usually have a lead investor. So it's slowly looking more and more like a a Series A. Uh, There's still some differences. And then in terms of pricing over that time, it goes up and down a bit. You know, I think generally prices have gone up over time as you've had more competition at seed, more funds, you know, the number of seed funds has ballooned in that time. You also have the multi-stage funds that now do quite a bit of seed. I think it really kind of peaked in 2021 when pricing honestly I think just got out of control and we were pretty uh, we were good about kind of sticking to our guns so we didn't we didn't kind of go crazy doing you know 50 million dollar valuations which just don't make it sense i seed. happy to kind of talk why that is and now you've seen it kind of come back down so I think we're, we're back down to what you kind of normally would have seen uh, you know four years ago or so where you know what I'd call like a core seed round so not not a pre-seed often it's like a two and a half million dollar round you know the median is probably like 10 or 12 million dollar post and that just kind of makes sense when you think about kind of the amount of uh, equity that the founders are giving up the amount of as, as kind of larger seed firms like us uh you know we can get our kind of 10 percent ownership maybe you have a co-lead that gets 10 percent uh or maybe you have a bunch of smaller angels and funds that are getting kind of smaller amounts. It kind of works out for everyone. And and that kind of got out of whack, honestly, in 2020, yeah. 2021, when you started having, you know, these like three on, you know, 40 post seed rounds. And it just it's just hard to build a business that way for folks like us.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I think it's a mistake. You want to price this round that you're doing now wherever you are in your journey so that the next round is not insanely mathematically unlikely to happen. Right. Totally. So what, but talk about some specifics though, for, for people that wouldn't know this. I mean, what, how much money does a company raise in a seed round? Like what's the size of the round and what's the amount of share capital they're selling? So how much dilution, how much are the all the investors combined gonna get? And, yeah. and how much should you be raising? Like what would be like you raise 500K from friends and families, the 250K, then you raise a million, then you raise two and a half. What do those numbers look like and how has that maybe shifted a little bit in modern times? Yeah,
1: I think like what you see with like a representative situation these days is, you know, a pre-seed round could be like a million, million and a half, um, especially in kind of the larger markets, you know, Bay Area, New York, maybe it's five, six post money. So let's call it five just for simplicity. Say they raise a million dollars for simplicity. Uh, They're selling 20% of that company or to all of the investors you know that might be split between different investors so say say two split in half but for simplicity you know they're each going to get 10 percent and then that company would you know take a year kind of get more, more traction you know build out the team um they're probably not getting through product market fit but maybe they have some early customers they have their product built you know that first round could have been very early um and say they raise i'm just again making up numbers but you know what we normally see in the major markets call it like three on a 12 toast. so You know, uh, again, all the investors together are buying twenty-five percent of that company. Um, The new investors, by the way, get a little bit diluted, so they may want to participate in that round as well. Um, And that's again, it kind of that's doable from a kind of so the invest the founders are getting diluted twenty percent, and then their eighty percent is getting diluted by twenty-five percent. And there's probably an option pool as well for some of their uh, 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 some of their uh, employees uh, but those are round numbers i think what you see in kind of in the major markets these days
0: so roughly you expect to get diluted by 20 percent um when completing a seed or a late seed even series a you know in ancient times in the 90s when i was raising you just double the size of the round and that's your pre because it was 33 percent. so it's like you know you feel pretty confident with math you're like we're raising 10, we're raising five on ten. Meaning that yeah. the free money valuation is exactly double the size of the round. And that's your magic number of thirty-three percent. And then things kind of push towards more um yeah, you know, more competition, maybe, you know. And, and totally, then, yeah. And then, and then yeah. you don't want too much dead weight. Like every VC says, Oh, I'm not dead weight. I'm like a co founder joining your team, but you know, at some point, you could argue that if you're not working at the company full time, you're dead weight. And so I think there's always been that dilemma. Before you had seed funds, it was hard getting to, where the hell are these angels? So there was no list of angels, you know, like angel list totally. to find them. Yep. So you could end up like I didn't know any better. I had the wrong lawyer and we started getting too diluted. And so by the time you meet benchmark series A, and you needed a lot of money to get a website even that you might have had too much dead weight. So It's interesting to see the thing kind of get codified and the, um, you know, dilution of like not so much in these rounds, you know, moving forward. Totally. So what about what about the structure? So legally, you know, it used to be you had a convertible note was like a promissory note. I didn't even realize until years, years later that I had raised money on an uncapped note, which I I don't really generally invest on uncapped notes unless it's a very in-between True bridge situation, but what are your what percentage of the time are you investing in convertible notes or safe notes? And what percent of the time is it priced
1: round? Yeah, that changes by year, and part of it is kind of the um, the level of uh, uh, power dynamics between investors and and, and founders. Uh, but I think overall, say the last five years, it's probably been twenty. 25 to 35% notes and the kind of 65% or whatnot um, on price rounds. We generally prefer price rounds when we're when we're leading a, an investment of you know the round of at least like two and a half million. A lot of our kind of core seeds, which tend to be kind of two and a half to four million. It makes sense to do a price round. Uh, for a kind of a pre-seed or a very small investment, that's when a safe probably makes more sense. They're cheaper, they're faster right. and kind of done quickly. Um, so the cost, legal cost and time cost of doing a price round, which could be, you know, for, uh, you know, 30K or something kind of all in for for legal and in, in maybe a month of your time, it becomes less kind of worthwhile when when it's a small amount of money.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, like I think in, in general, you don't want to see a big percentage of the investment capital going out the door to l- lawyers. Right. Yes, totally. That, that's bad. On the other no hand- No one likes
1: that, except for the lawyers.
0: <laughs> that's right. And well, even the lawyers wanna make sure that that company is getting funded, 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 so they really get paid. But what um, what are some reasons why you don't, what, why would you prefer a priced round to a safe note? And if a founder wants to be uh, make their financing attractive to AnyAc and investors like us, what, why, why should they be motivated to ever do a price round if the safe note was basically download, save as it's in my back pocket free?
1: Yeah. So when you do a price round, you uh, coming out of that round, everyone knows exactly what they own. That's probably the the biggest advantage, especially for for founders. With the of safe notes, you can kind of keep raising different safe notes. A lot of them these days will be a post money safe. The calculations around how much you're getting diluted are actually pretty uh, opaque, and it can be and it can be a real surprise down the road when you raise your Series A. And then all these safe notes will convert, and also of your your you're, you're, you're uh, impacted a lot more than you think. So a lot of it is transparency. There is some kind of governance that goes wrong, along with uh, with price round often, but not always. you'll form a board. You may want the investor to be a board member. our Our kind of approach is when we lead around, we will be the board member. we generally but we don't have to be. we, we you know we think that kind of governance at that at that stage isn't that useful. It's more about the relationship uh, between us and the and the founders. Uh, some founders, I think, uh, will uh, benefit from a, a board because they get used to that cadence because they're going to have one after the Series A, anyways. A really kind of, um, for example, uh, um, I invested in a company called Tap Commerce, and we formed a board. As a board member, I worked really closely with them. Those guys sold their company and started another company called Attent- uh, Attentive, and they had already kind of done it all before. We didn't form a board. I didn't need to be a board member. I worked closely with with. with uh, with Brian and team outside of the board concept, um, so it really depends kind of on the situation whether you need to form a board.
0: Yeah, and what about we were talking about QSBS before we started recording this? I mean, I mean, how does QSBS uh, or what is QSBS if you wanted to say quickly?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I'm not a venture lawyer, but QSBS is qualified small business. Uh, it basically allows uh, earnings on qualified. Uh, Companies which tend to be kind of starts under a certain value to be tax free. It's um, if you're a founder, you need to kind of get up to speed on this. It can allow a lot of your your kind of uh, when you eventually sell your company or your IPO or whatnot, a lot of that can be tax free. There's like whole tricks you can do around like creating trusts and breaking up the trusts and sub trusts. Probably too much for for this, where you can actually. It's an advantage of investing in really early stage. Uh, uh, companies, and it, that's what it's supposed to do. It's tried, it's supposed to spur innovation. So uh, hopefully it's doing what it's supposed to do. But um, once the company gets to a certain level of maturity, I think it tends to be about $50 million in, in assets It no longer qualifies. And there's a bunch of things you need yeah. to do to kind of qualify. But it's something I, if nothing else you take from this, if you're a founder or early stage investor, like learn about it make sure you're taking advantage because uh, it, it can really be helpful.
0: Yeah. I mean, the key point I wanted to bring up is that if you invest on a convertible note or a safe note, pre or post money safe, a key thing is that the company's got to be under 50 million on the balance sheet, inclusive of that cash you're wiring. And you have to hold the stock for five years in a day. And so if we've been the patient guys that held the stock for five years in a day, um, our LP investors that are US taxpayers and us, it's zero tax on either the first 10 million or 10X your cost base. So if you put 3 million in, And you made a gazillion on it you pay zero tax on the first 30 million of gain and the five-year clock doesn't start ticking until that convertible note or safe has converted into equity and so it's frustrating for me when i'm investing early that i see okay fine if it's if you're not investing on the safe you're not playing the game so we play the game and we invest in the safe and then they're like all right now we're raising 15 million dollars on a safe And I'm like, guys, that's not going to start my five-year clock ticking. And if you went that distance, I don't know. I just think it's, I'd like to see a little more price round discipline in this market. Because it's better for a lot of people. But, well, cool. Totally.
1: And and we've we've definitely gotten hit with that, where, you know, it's been four and a half years, but it was a note. And then the clock didn't start until the A. So, um, yeah, it's another advantage of price rounds for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you ride out twelve years, like you, you have more than twelve years, you start to notice. Um, you know, ESOP got dropped on me after the investment, and so I effectively the denominator got bigger, my numerator stayed smaller, so I fractionally own less of this company than I thought. Um, mm-hmm. but it's hard mm-hmm. to ignore the math when it's all happened. It's it's yep. exciting going in. It's it's exciting going in. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, technology, Hadley. What What technologies, you know, over Shakespearean timelessly have you been excited about with your kind of, you know, investment thesis and what technologies are you excited about today? I know a lot of people are talking about generative AIs kind of, you know, it's hard not to hear people talk about that, but what's exciting you guys right now?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I'm fortunate that um, I've been involved with kind of AI-based companies for a while. One of the companies I helped build was uh, Blingo that was the first virtual assistant. So we, were, we weren't we were even allowed to call it AI because it was like a dirty word. This is back in 2006 through 2011. Um, and then kind of one of my core, if not kind of the majority of my investments I've lived, driven on, on behalf of ENIAC and as a firm have been kind of what I'd call like applied AI SaaS companies over the last five years. Um, a lot of those were kind of NLU or natural language understanding based companies. So um, actually we made, and I was fortunate to kind of drive uh, a few of these, like a, a bunch of generative AI uh, investments last year and earlier this year, uh, just cause we were, it was a natural evolution from NLU to, so understanding to generation. Um, and as these kind of lar- large language models have uh, kind of been released and kind of shown what they can do, It's just gotten crazy, you know, in my opinion, too hot in terms of money kind of and founders kind of rushing into this space. So I actually I was mentioning this on Twitter, like the last six months, I'd say the average quality of the deals we're seeing within kind of applied AI has gone down quite a bit. And it's because there's so many founders rushing into the space. And like, I think that's great for the long term. The problem is when you meet a lot of, of these companies, it's clear they really haven't been thinking about this that long. You know, it's like in, in some cases they were working on like crypto a year ago, like crypto, crypto winter hit, all of a sudden the chat GPT launched and uh and you know, they're like, well, I, I can apply this to this problem. I just think we're we're kind of too early for a lot of those founders. I think they're gonna have like I, a lot of times I kind of encourage them to kind of keep thinking about what they're doing. It's probably another six months before they can apply it. It's just what I would say is like a lot of what they're doing is is a very thin layer on top of these existing kind of foundation models. And I worry that there's just not going to be enough value created on top of them. And and when you ask them about how they kind of have these long-term moats, the answer is I think their understanding even of how like the the, the those uh, those platforms will develop. i I think is unfortunately not 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 right. So anyways, that that's one of the space that we've been really excited about. interestingly, like a little more bearish now that it's gotten so hot because it just like it doesn't seem like as much quality. but I, I do kind of I am a believer kind of in in AI in general uh, in kind of the combination of like understanding and generation being kind of completely. Um, uh, fundamental to how things change going
0: forward. It, you know, it's kind of ironic because we, we were in early, well, I'm really good friends with a guy, uh, Igor Jablikov who founded Yap, which he sold to Alexa, mm-hmm. to Amazon. I, and I, P- I, 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 you know I know Igor as well. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. okay, so so e, Igor is like, was an LPM. Is were a competitor or at uh,
1: Blingo? So we, we used to actually chat.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I get together with him all the time. He, he's a venture partner, LPNR our fund. And he wanted me, I was invited to invest in the very beginning of Brian, but he was hiring people at like a million dollar salaries. And he was just out there saying, Hey, I'm Igor Jablokov. I'm going to hire anybody I want. And we could be valued at, you know, we need to be valued at more than a million dollars per engineer. I mean, I'm paying him a million a year. And so I was like, you know, we don't have that kind of fund to do that. You know what I mean? But I'm always getting schooled by the guy. And then Kindy came along um, on the West Coast right around the corner from me when I was still living in San Francisco. And that was an NLP, like nat- natural language processing company. And I just thought all, all the numbers just look so much better to me. And I fell in love with Ryan too. So I kind of helping these two companies all the time, you know, without, yeah. you, know, de- you know, dancing too much in a conflict of interest. But the one thing I've learned is that this is almost like semiconductors. You know, you you can't just say like, "Oh, I'm gonna hire my old roommate and just do this." It, it, it's it's like it's like building some serious technology. So when the people that were fad seekers that are just chasing whatever the flavor of the month buzzword is that they, they they think the LPs want, the VCs want, and that they'll get, and they're putting their thin layer on this stuff, there's some serious stuff under the hood at both sure. Brian. So it's kind of ironic that it's attracting. Yeah, I don't want to say anyone's a bad operator, but you know, it's attracting the, you know, uh, flavor of the month, you know, chasing that fad, kind of person. So I, I feel, I feel it too. I remember like many, many years ago, in the same like month, I got thirty uh, investment proposals out of Microsoft people around the second lifetime. That the metaverse was going to be a really big deal, and, and that
1: oh, first, the, the first metaverse,
0: yeah, it was, it was like 2006 or something. Like, like all of a sudden, everyone at Microsoft believed that Second Life that we would all be, you know, buying beachfront on in Second Life as opposed to like on a beach. You know, and they believed yeah. it so much that it all came at once. So it was the ultimate, It was the first time I really experienced a a trend happening like on my laptop, you know, so viciously. But
1: yeah. So, so, People forget so, with this current G- chat GPT thing that there was like a, a big uh, chatbot craze like five, six years ago where like a bunch of companies or chatbot based got, got funded and really didn't go anywhere. And And the reason for that is the underlying technology wasn't ready. But it's funny that a lot of people kind of have already forgotten about that, that that kind of came and, and went. Uh, so there's a lot of cycles here I think people aren't really paying attention to. You,
0: you had a tweet that said like, there was one and two and two is still the same, but one is not. What, what was- what, Yeah, what that's you- right.
1: Yeah, so the underlying, so there's kind of two thing, reasons I think that the chatbot craze um, didn't work out. One was that the, the underlying uh, technology wasn't quite Ready, and I think do think that that is true. I, I think it's it's come a long way. It's like to your to your kind of semiconductor uh, analogy. Like I think like NLU at least has been um, like beating Moore's law in terms of like how 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 it's been evolving over that kind of five six years. The other one was that chat interface is not right for a lot of uh, use cases, and I think a lot of folks realize that um, in that like. I don't know if you remember, but there was all these like uh, bots where you could like update your CRM with a bot and you'd be like, okay, I have a new customer. And would be like, what's the customer's name? You would answer it. This sounds obvious now, but it would be like all this back and forth, whereas like if you had a full GUI, you could just fill it in. And I think a lot of folks, I think are getting a little confused because uh, ChatGPT is using a chat interface for its own showcase, which is, which is awesome. And it kind of shows the power of that. But then they build something on top of it and they also have a chat interface and it's like that's not the best use like the interface for a lot of use cases you, it's more likely that you might have like a GUI interface or, or whatnot that in the back end is communicating with that so i think that's the one thing that will be kind of interesting to to play out like how does this chat interface kind of and where is it really useful something like search yeah i think it's really, really useful a lot of other things like collecting information when you might want kind of more more multi, multi-modal makes a lot of sense
0: i mean i remember uh, when I started my career, people talked about object-oriented software building and like object-oriented, like let's build with Lego bricks. And there was like RAD, I think Rapid Application Development, RAD. And and so like- so, I do remember that, yeah. You know, things like object-oriented, this whole concept of using Lego bricks and then HTML was out before the web browser. So you could kind of upload an object of software and someone else could download it. It was as much of a miracle as the fax coming out in Geneva that was sent from New York, you know, that, that um, now the idea that you can, you know, use like NLU, NLP that can understand like bank means riverbank, or do we mean Bank of America and like starts to get closer and closer to accuracy, but at the level of like software, you know, checking your code with generative AI, I mean, it it, it is kind of exciting to see some of these things to come together, but at the end of the day, you got to identify the right teams with the right business model, with the right verticalized attack that will will this interface be tolerated by a billionaire who flies private or do we actually need to send a man in a van or you know something to handle the situation? But maybe that maybe the, the generative AI tells a person what to say quickly, right? While mm-hmm. while they're on that call. And so mm-hmm. what are some other investment themes that you think you guys are going to be focused on for the rest of twenty twenty three?
1: Yeah, the uh, so we're we're generalists as a firm. Um I have a partner that spends a lot of time on fintech. Uh I and another person do a decent amount of kind of healthcare, mostly kind of what I call uh uh modernizing the healthcare stack. Uh, healthcare is weird and then it's like very archaic and sometimes it's archaic for a reason, sometimes it's not. So the hard the hard thing is figuring out when it's there, when it's that way for a reason, uh some often kind of clinical reasons. Um uh, we, we do a, a decent amount of kind of SaaS, non kind of AI-driven SaaS. I tend to focus on kind of SaaS built on top of some sort of AI. We also do kind of more run-of-the-mill SaaS. So we're we're generalists. We, the only thing we tend not to do is things that are kind of very low technology, brand-oriented investments, which you actually have a decent amount in, in New York. There was a lot of these kind of branded yeah. e-commerce companies, and we kind of steered clear of that. We never really understood, honestly, we never felt like we were able to judge them on what would be successful and how how kind of the brand mode would evolve. I think we're fortunate that that has done poorly, I think, over time. But other than that, we kind of touch everything within tech.
0: Okay, that's cool. And uh, I mean, I know this, but for people listening geographically, what are the core geographies that you focus on or where, where do you stay away from?
1: Yeah, we're geographically agnostic. Um, you know, especially since COVID, we used to require kind of uh, the CEO be within North America. We have made some investments uh, out where they've been uh, in other areas. We have a ton of investments where often the CEO is in uh, New York or the Bay Area, and a lot of the team is in India or Berlin or UK. Uh, it's just a, a great way to kind of arbitrage around kind of tech talent. Um, so we're geographically agnostic. Um, the, the, our biggest hubs tend to be New York and San Francisco. We're, we have 12 folks all in New York. So that's kind of our our home base. SF and kind of Bay Area still the biggest tech hub. And we have a, a lot of folks that we've kind of worked with there over the years. That's kind of number two. But yeah, we're, we're not kind of focused from a geography yeah. point of view.
0: I think it was someone from ENIAC that asked me to meet with Doug Simpson at NAVD. Because like you guys oh, were yeah. ready to make an investment. You're like, I just wanted someone to see it and touch it. And, 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 and so I met with them and thanks to you guys, we invested in it. And we were pretty confident that we had that thing in the bag with the sale, but, you know, thank God for a little diversification. Uh, so that that yep. was one, yep. that was one where I was like, I was the West coast agent for the New York, <laughs> you know, guys, especially that- something
1: like that with a physical component, you got to have someone meet them in person yeah yeah, i had it it in my i
0: mean i was using it myself like i had two nav in my cars you know i love that thing i'm sorry it doesn't work anymore but uh i know such is the game such is the game yeah well well well, really good um so parting to, to close out let's talk about maybe what founders need to do to get through these next couple of like their next financing round or get to profitability and where you see the exit market i mean obviously the multiples and the Stock market have gone from what felt like normal to crazy to maybe below normal. Um, yeah,
1: I hope so. I, I mean, I hope this is below normal because um, they are definitely pretty depressed. Um, yeah, it depends on what stage they're at, but I think in general, I think at the very early stages, I think we're not that far away from normal. I think there's there's a lot of appetite for seed rounds, even for later stage investors. I think when when you're looking more at the growth stages, it's really hard out there. And yeah. I think a lot of, it's gonna be hard to raise rounds and those companies, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with our kind of later stage investments, really trying to cut burn. We were lucky that uh, a handful of them were able to raise money usually at a flat round, which was kind of a big win at the time. But those are also companies that had been growing quickly. Ones that aren't growing quickly are, are, are not gonna be able to do that. Um, so uh yeah if you haven't kind of made adjustments at this point i think unfortunately you're kind of in in tough shape like last kind of like late spring was the time to really make adjustments so um yeah i think it's actually a good investment i'm sorry a good investment um ecosystem for early stage and later stage to your point you know the closer you can get to break even the longer you can push off having a raise uh, I do think this year will be a bit of a bloodbath uh, for for growth stage companies that have to raise and growth investors just seem like they're really slow and they're kind of waiting to get really good deals, you know, because companies have to raise. So that's not the environment you want to be yeah. in. Yeah,
0: It's kind of a tough discrepancy between the bid ask of what founders are willing to do whatever it takes to keep payroll going. Their investors don't want to mark down a down round. New investors want some structure which could really hurt guys like you and me if we're if there's you know a multiple liquidation preference comes in on a round that the company shouldn't be spending at you know so I think yep and then and then some of them are sitting here like hey I raised a huge round in the summer of 2021 and I'm you know we're gonna make that my my runway is 19 years and so I'm not gonna get structured or taken advantage of from a late stage investor either you know I have to make changes yeah but I guess it's a tale of two cities. You know, you know, a little bit, if you can get to the point that you don't need money, then you'll negotiate a fair agreement to keep growing. You know, it, it's what, it was, what I think is what it's starting to look like where we're at right now with this evolution. Well, Hadley. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, that's great. So, so Hadley, you can be found it on Twitter at Hadley which shows you're the first Hadley on Twitter. <laughs> you're not Hadley 266.
1: There was another one, but uh, yeah, luckily uh, my I, my partner uh, Nahal got uh, Jack to give me that a number of years ago. So I, I, uh, I'm one of the few guys that, I, I don't deserve my own name on Twitter, but luckily got one.
0: Yeah, yeah that, that's very cool. All right, man, Wilson, I hope to see you soon in New York. Sorry you guys can't be in our event, but thanks for coming on the pod and uh, look forward to continuing to invest with you guys.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. Have a good one.
0: Okay, you too. Thanks so much. Bye.